Hey, it's Tom. This is Forging Ahead, and I've got Lydia Bowers with me today. And uh, Lydia, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself however you want to? All right. Thanks, Tom, for having me today. Great to be here. Uh, My name is Lydia Bowers, and I am an HR professional. I know that term sometimes makes people shudder, um, but I really actually am very passionate about the work I do, primarily focused in early stage startups and building people-focused processes that help companies scale. What does that mean? It means from taking your first hire to maybe your 30th to your 100th, what's your organizational structure? What's your compensation philosophy? What's your recruiting and onboarding strategy? Um, All this stuff I find really exciting and very exciting at early stage companies where I get to build uh, rather than maybe maintain. Um, My own personal background I actually started my career in policy uh, and actually loved that work for several years, um, but quickly realized that I wasn't as passionate about it as I thought. So I made a jump actually into a startup, as most young, ambitious people do, um, really as an operations manager, so a jack of all trades. But about six months in, we were growing pretty rapidly, and I went to my boss and said, hey, looks like you need someone focused on people. Can I do that? And fortunate for me, he said yes. Spent about a year and a half, two years there, seeing them grow from 13 to about 80. So uh, actually a lot of growth for that short of a time. And at that point, I actually decided to go to graduate school um, to focus more on the space, uh, really get a depth of knowledge. You know, I had a breath working in a startup, but I wanted to go very deep in a few certain areas. So grad school was a great opportunity for me in that. And now I'm back in early stage startups now, but my current company has both uh, full-time salaried, really smart software, hardware engineers, as well as we are a restaurant company. So we have an hourly workforce and doing HR for that population is pretty different and a great, uh, interesting experience for me as well. Let me pause there and any follow-up questions, Tom, or anything else I can dive into. Oh, what an (laughs) intro. Any follow-up questions? Yeah, a thousand. I don't even know where to start. Um, I guess like there's so many like meaty words in what you said. And and it's also like something that I captured in your LinkedIn profile where you say, I work in the intersection of human resources and startups, building and scaling exemplary people practices for early to mid stage companies. Can we try to like dissect that a little bit? So, um, just the word, the two words together that, are the most meaningful. There are people practices. Yep. What does that mean? What does that mean? So I will define it how I define it. I'm sure others would potentially disagree. People practices are everything that actually touches the people who are building your company. Um, And the reason I think it's so important for early stage companies to focus on that uh, is getting it wrong early makes it so much harder to fix or improve later. Um, Having now been through a couple different startups I know the focus is on building the product and getting the product out and engaging with the customer. And all of that is so important when you're really just fighting for, let's be honest, survival. But I think a lot of companies overlook that their employees and their people are also a customer. And as much as emphasis that you're putting on uh, your customer for your product, you should be thinking about your customer who are the people who are building that product. Um, And I I won't segue into this unless you'd like me to. There's an interesting uh, phenomenon in startups where people practices tends to be entirely focused on recruiting because you tend to be growing and you need to get people in. Um, And that's certainly a very important part of HR or of uh, people. 
But it seems like once the people are in the door, a lot of companies sort of miss the mark on what comes next, be it performance management or compensation or even just things like culture beyond having a ping pong table, which don't get me wrong, ping pong tables are wonderful, but they're not the only part of culture. <laughs> yeah, let's go there now. I think that's a that's a nice transition. So once you've got, should we put some context around it for like team size maybe? Um why don't you you lead there? I guess the once you've <laughs> so, hired the people and we have a team of however many people you want to talk about, what do we do now? Right. So most companies start with the co-founders. Typically, I'll say co-founders. There occasionally are solo founders, but usually one, two, three, four, the co-founders. Mm-hmm. And then you'll probably get your early stage hire two or three additional people. And at least in my experience, that core five, six it's probably what's going to see you through that like stealth phase we all talk about where you're trying to figure out, do we even really have a, a viable idea here? Mm-hmm. What most companies hit is either when they're trying to get that first product into customers' hands, maybe they're trying to raise something beyond a seed round, maybe it's 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 a series A, something else. You have to start bringing in more people because you just need more expertise areas. Um, most likely it's in marketing if you're, you know, well, B2B or B2C, but a lot of the times business to consumer needs marketing. Um, that's the time where people hire more on their depth of teams, software product, hiring more software engineers. This is also the time where you really want to start thinking about those like people practices. Um, because if you don't, it's quickly how much it'll snowball into something that's a little bit hard to pull back. And so I'll start with a great example of when you're looking to hire, let's say your sixth or seventh employee, probably most of your hires to this point have come from your own network as a co-founder. So maybe it's your alumni association from your college. It's your, uh, I don't know, your, your accelerator you joined. You know, it's the network you have. And there's nothing wrong with hiring from your network, but everyone's network is a bit limiting. Right? We don't know everyone in the world. And most likely we're all building products that touch people beyond ourselves. So we want to start building teams that reflect the products, the people we're building the products for. Um, and so if we don't adjust our recruiting strategy right then and there, you know, you might wake up 15, 20 people in and realize you've still hired half your team from the same college or half your team from the same um, geographic location or whatever, like the, the, the deciding thing is that you all had in common. Um, so, you know, Can I interrupt great- you for a second. Oh, please do. The um, that's really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that, but so the team should reflect the product that you are building. Is that right? Yeah. yeah believe that so deeply. Um, And I will point to it in both of my kind of current companies. So my previous company was a financial technology company looking to build an investment platform focused on women. Um, For a number of reasons, they sort of coined the term the investment gap. Women don't tend to invest at the same rates that men do. Um, And a very good reason for that is so much of the literature and sort of the um, industry is built by men. Nothing wrong with that. But our user research showed that women approach investing very differently. And so women weren't investing because they didn't feel like they could engage with the current material and content on the market. And so we had to build a team then that was super aware and super um, capable to kind of address that. And so that had to be to honestly a large percentage of women and also a large percentage of women who typically came from a background where maybe money wasn't discussed because our research showed that women who came from backgrounds, like let's say their parents talked to them about money, felt a lot more confident to invest. And so we saw the people we were trying to reach, the people who didn't have that knowledge, and we needed to have those people on our team so we could build that product for them. I love that. It also, it's, it's a great 
way, not to segue too much, but a lot of focus in startups or in hiring in general is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And a lot of times when I bring up DE and I, you get some eye rolls from people. And I, I totally can sometimes understand where people are like, oh, why are we talking about this? And a great way to frame it to get people to care is the business case that if we can hire a more diverse workforce that reflects the population we're trying to build for, it'll make a better product and will be more successful rather than the argument you usually hear, which is we should hire a diverse workforce because we should, which doesn't always resonate with everyone. That's a really smart way to it's a little surprising to me that that gap still exists, but um, that's a really smart way. It's it's hard to argue with that logic from a business perspective. It's like if you're building a tool for a really specific set of people and you don't have that specific set of people on your team, like you don't have any of that perspective. Or honestly, more generally, like my current company, we are a restaurant startup. So we are in theory building a product for every single person in the United States because everyone eats, everyone goes to a restaurant. Uh, so our team should definitely reflect the very diverse and, and uh, you know, complex population that is the United States. So we can build a product that can reach as many people as possible. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, so I, I cut you off as we were talking about, we were talking about hiring once you first get outside your personal network and you have seven people or so, what sort of things are critical to get right as like foundational? You had mentioned um, if you don't, there's this snowball effect that it's like really hard to peel back after the fact. So what are some of those things? So mentioned recruiting and happy to talk more about the specifics of recruiting. But yes, recruiting is a great one because you are going to be growing quickly and you want to be growing in a way that is sustainable and, and creating a really great team. But beyond recruiting, a few things I have found very helpful for companies to get in place as soon as possible is some type of organizational structure or the decision to not have an organizational structure. Um, you know, some companies choose to be flat and that is totally fine, but there should be an intentional choice in one or two directions and then um, that should be built out. And the reason for that is um, knowing what the structure is, whether it's hierarchy or it's lateral or whatever it is, um, helps with minimize confusion. Um, it is surprised how many I've consulted for a few companies now where during kind of the fact finding point, people tell me, I don't know who my manager is. And that is, might seem sort of silly, but it can get really lost in the early stages. Like there's only seven of us who need, who cares who's, who's manager, but people really want to know who is the one evaluating my performance? Who is the one who's going to help me grow in this role? Um, Building some type of organizational structure also really helps with giving people a sense of where their career can grow in your company. And again, most of the time, the company is only a year old. What are people doing thinking about their future? But a lot of research shows, especially for not to make generalizations, but millennials and, and the younger generations, knowing how your career can grow in a company is a really uh, important uh, thing for them. Um, and it's actually a free thing companies can do. It doesn't really cost money to build an org structure. Um, and so if you can do something to help your company, your employees um, want to stay in your company longer for free, why wouldn't you do it? Sure. Um, the other thing that comes hand in hand with an org structure is once you know what your org structure is, once you know the levels by which people can move through the organization, 
Um, and a great example is you know, a three-tiered structure. You have associate, manager, you know, director, right? Or you can get even more nuanced and have seven tiers, or you can call them all ninjas, uh, guru. But again, you just sort of have a structure mm-hmm. is you can put a compensation philosophy in place. It's really hard to know how to pay people if you don't actually know where they sort of fall on some type of structure. Um, but once you have the structure, a comp uh, philosophy can flow from there. And it's so important to have a comp philosophy because at some point you're going to need one. And every company at some point needs to know well, how it's paying its people and why. And if you do it at 200, there will definitely be outliers that need to be fixed. Whereas if you've done it at 20, you won't have to necessarily address that. And having gone through a process where with a 200 person company, there were some extreme outliers, bringing the people up who are below, that's great. It's the people who are above that are very difficult to deal with. And if you can just avoid that, why wouldn't you? Could you give an example or two of, I'm not sure I've ever heard somebody say comp philosophy. (laughs) So like, you know, a framework for how people get paid. Like what are some examples that you've seen or that you've created? Yes. Great question. Um, so a compensation philosophy is pretty much how a company is choosing to, yeah, compensate their team, right? It sounds almost silly. Um, but when you talk about comp, it's so important. The quote I love to say is compensation is never going to be the only reason your employee will be happy at work but it could be a very big reason why they're unhappy. Like you need to have really great comp or really great philosophy and other things for your team to be happy. But if you have terrible comp or a really unfair philosophy, by far the team will be very unhappy about that. Um, A great example of what a compensation philosophy means, it sort of means, okay, typically you base comp off market, right? You don't typically want to pay four times what your competitors are paying because that typically is not a good business decision. But then within that, you think, okay, do we want to pay at the 50th percentile? Do we want to pay about average to our competitors? Maybe we want to pay at the 70th percentile. Maybe we do want to pay a little bit above because um, we think that's going to really attract top talent. Or maybe there is a strategic choice to pay below market rate because you have some really great benefits that balance that out. Or to be honest, um, it's a little bit hard to justify paying below market rate, but I'm sure there are some companies who choose to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one piece in what you have to decide is sort of, okay, where in sort of this market data are we going to place ourselves? And then there's other decisions around things like everyone gets a base comp, right? Like that's the salary you see on your you know pay stub. Um, but do we use bonuses here? And how, if so, how? Um, questions like, uh, do we do annual reviews and everyone gets a raise on their annual or do we only do raises when someone gets promoted? Um, do we allow people to sort of ask for raises whenever they want to, or do we try to standardize at what point is it yearly? Is it every six months? But those kind of things that if you just put a structure in place, I believe give employees more confidence about their comp, but also makes managers lives a lot easier because, you know, if you can standardize how often you do raises, they're not going to have to be constantly deflecting, Hey boss, can I, can I get a raise? (laughs) Yeah, that's really great. I guess, um, I hadn't thought about it like that early, but getting that wrong is a big deal. It's, it's surprising. And and it's, I I don't believe, well, all right, I should be careful here. There are nefarious people in the world, but I believe most people, 99.9% of people are not nefarious. And the th- dreaded thing we hear about called the pay gap, I believe is more a result of not intentionally set processes than people 
like openly and like nefariously trying to underpay certain groups. Um, and I believe if every company can really think intentionally about this very early, it can go a long way towards solving some of those really deep like uh, systemic issues we hear a lot about. Yeah. So we've got organizational structure. We've got a comp philosophy. What else? Um, this one's a little bit more fun, but I think it's an important one. Trying to understand what your culture is. Um, and it's a little trickier, right? Because there's no perfect formula to being like, what is our culture? Um, but I'm a firm believer culture exists whether or not you're intentional. If you're intentional, it's probably the culture you want. If you're not intentional, it's going to grow organically, which could be good or bad. Um, we see a lot of examples sometimes. Uh, I think Uber is a very good example of a culture that built probably without a whole lot of planning and some aspects of that culture that developed were less than beneficial to some people who worked in the company. Um, and so ways to go about thinking about the kind of culture you have is uh, a lot of companies approach it through core values. They think about what guides the decision-making process of this company. How do we institutionalize that? Um, other ways to think about sort of culture are what are the traditions and symbolic things we do here that sort of make us who we are. Um, and I think a sort of a silly example of that, but like, how does your company recognize anniversaries, right? Um, well, one, companies should recognize anniversaries because it's important. You know, imagine if your significant other forgot your anniversary. It's almost as heartbreaking if your company forgets your anniversary. It's an important date. Um, but yeah, is it a big deal? Um, do you get a cake? Do you do, do, do you give them a gift? Is there some sort of, um, here at uh, Spice, my current company, we actually have all of our team members write little notes to the anniversary and we give them to them so they can kind of read them throughout the year as a little pick me up. Um, Love that. Yeah, but the thinking about what traditions or symbolic gestures um, indicate to your yeah your company and your team what matters here. Can we take a crack at defining culture? <laughs> uh, you can yeah, say no. So, it, so we can, except for I fear there are many smart people who have tried as well, smarter people than I who have also struggled. I mean, it's kind of like the soup we're all swimming around in. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, and the way the why the why I like the soup analogy is, you know, let's say you have a really great soup, right? Like I don't know, name your favorite soup, Tom. Chili. Chili. Okay, well, chili is a great. Is that example. a soup? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a stew, but stews and soups is the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I, it comes in a pot. I can make it in my slow cooker. I'm going to take it as a soup. <laughs> um, okay. So a chili is a great example, though, because you can take a really delicious chili as it currently is. So all the components that are currently in it, which is, you know, if we're going to extend the analogy, your current team, your current practices, whatever, and you could add one more piece to it. Let's say it's like cheddar cheese. And that makes it so much better. And culture is constantly evolving in that way. It's going to change as more people come in, as things about your company shift. But if you bring in good things, like good people, like that cheddar cheese, that culture is going to get even better. But if you bring in not so great things, like let's say a, a bad compensation philosophy, or you're ignoring issues, um, that's like throwing something really gross on top of your chili, which I don't know. I don't know what it, when you're like. Like ranch dressing. Actually, there's probably people who like ranch dressing on their chili. So <laughs> no, I, I apologize to the ranch dressing <laughs> fans out there. <laughs> I like that, though. I think that um, that feels right. It's like it is like that marination process of all of these different things. It's like a catch-all for everything that shows up at work, it feels like. Right. 
And the big fear there is because it's so nebulous, it can quickly get out of hand and you don't even necessarily realize it. So how do you, um, being intentional about culture, starting with core values and things like traditions and symbolic gestures that we're going to do as a group and celebrating anniversaries, um, what else goes in that bucket so that you can pick your head up one day and, and look around and say, this is what I intended it to be and not this accidentally happened because I wasn't paying attention? Right. So a good first step, and I'm talking now more toward founders and maybe early stage teams, is hire somebody to focus on it. Um, and uh, I say that because... When do you think that should happen? So I'm a little biased because this is my work, but I would say as early as possible. Um, the most successful teams I've seen have hired you know, within the first year or two, like even 10 to 15 hires, you're hiring somebody who's at least part of their job is focused on culture, uh, people, things like that. There is a fear or a sometimes companies hire recruiters thinking they will also fill that role. And don't misunderstand me. Recruiters are fantastic. And I deeply appreciate the work they do. Um, but recruiters jobs typically are to find and get people into the company. Um, and while they might straddle HR for a little while, it's a little unfair to expect them to also handle the culture inside the company. So it's both hiring people like a recruiter and then potentially also an HR person. And they work very closely together, but they have slightly different focus areas. What are some, um, I love the note jar that you guys do at Spice. <laughs> what are some other good ones that you've seen either at previous companies or um, that you guys do at Spice? Yeah, um, I'll have to think through that. Is there a particular like area you would like me to focus on? Just you know, choose I guess an adventure. I, I like the, um, the anniversary thing I think is a big deal. And I think that in my experience, I probably haven't done a good enough job at at recognizing people's anniversaries. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a big deal. I mean, you spend so much time at work. It's like, it's your analogy <laughs> to like your significant other forgetting. It's, it feels similar. Yeah, it, it does. And it's, 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 I don't want to call it sad, but it's true. It's true. We, whether or not we realize it, work gives us a lot of meaning. I mean, a lot of us define ourselves through our work. And I think it's pretty, unintentionally hurtful if that's not reciprocated in some way. And a lot of the times it is unintentional, right? Like we all get busy, we all get heads down, but yeah. Um, so I will give you an example. The full anniversary process at Spice is we do the jar, which is a way for teammates to uh, recognize an individual, maybe share more personal things they wouldn't want to share publicly. And then during our weekly, we do an all hands, uh, the manager actually stands up and sort of reflects back publicly on this individual's contributions for the past year. That's a, a public recognition. Um, also a great way to highlight how much this person has brought to the company because that sometimes is missed. You know, as we get bigger, we don't always see what everyone works on. So it's a chance for the whole team to appreciate. Um, so actually, we just had our anniversary for our office manager um, today in our all hands. And uh, her manager got up and one of the facts he shared was, you know, Haley, who is our office manager, currently has open projects with Tom, Mike, Jennifer, uh, Peter, Sarah, Lydia. He listed about 15 different people that she has open projects with, which just highlights, you know, office manager. You think, oh, she's the office manager. She makes sure everyone has a desk. But in fact, that role is just so encompassing. And I think she really appreciated being acknowledged in that way. 
And then the third thing we do, which we actually just rolled out recently, is um, a, a separate tradition Spice does. Is everyone gets a Spice name and a Spice jacket. And we had these pins made, um, one for each sort of year of anniversary. So first year, second year, third year. Um, and the hope to be kind of like a letterman's jacket in high school. People can put these pins on their jacket. And that's a way for new hires or anybody to kind of recognize, wow, this person has been with the company for three years, um, you know, long after their anniversary. And maybe they could be looked to as an expert by new hires. Um, so stuff like that. And actually... I know this is a podcast, so people listening can't see it. But I actually we could try have, to describe it. I have, I have. It's actually the pin for the first year anniversary is our original logo of the company. It's really it's cool. No longer our logo, but it's sort of a callback to our founding. I love and that vintage. Yeah, yeah. We're, we were pretty excited about it. Again, that was an office manager project. She is very all encompassing in what she does. That's so great. Um, do you think that? just for the sake of time that we could transition a little bit to do some of the recruiting, interviewing, hiring, onboarding stuff. Yeah. hundred percent. I know there's a lot there, but I guess, um, is that the right order? Is it recruiting, interviewing, hiring, onboarding? Like, is that the right steps? Take that however you want. I'll, I'll yield to you there. Sure. Sounds, sounds great. So yes and no, they're the right steps. Um, the right steps, and those are all the steps you should do. I would just potentially swap or sort of separate interviewing as interviewing planning and then interviewing execution. And the reason I say that is I feel very strongly before any role is opened in, in any company, a few things should be done, which is first, you know, you should understand exactly what you're hiring for in this role. So that's typically writing a job description. That's the thing you're going to post for the whole world to see. Um, but I also think it's uh, you typically need to do some internal work there because the job description honestly should be kind of like an ad for your company. It should really be written in a way that's like kind of engaging, like really pretty exciting. Um, and then internally, what we do is we do a candidate scorecard, which is where we actually list out the top four to five things that this hire would need to be able to do in the first six months of hiring that would make them a rock star. And that just helps us get really nebulous or really like really focused in on what exactly we're evaluating for because job descriptions or even every team member can have a slightly different perspective on like what, you know, this one sentence means. But if you can like list out specific tasks or projects or accomplishments this person would need to be able to do. It just really helps build that internal alignment. And then once you have that scorecard in place, you before you start interviewing, you should know what the interview process is. And that's for two reasons. One, you don't want to be caught scrambling because I think we've all been on the side of a candidate where we don't hear back for four weeks or we come in for an interview and then have the exact same interview three weeks later with someone else. And that's just not a great experience. So you want to plan out your interview process so you know what the candidate's going to go through. But also, if you plan out in advance, you offer consistency. Hiring is not a perfect science. In fact, it's a really messy science. And it's one we all get wrong pretty often. Mm -hmm. One way you can kind of try to ensure slightly better success is this idea of consistency. You have the same people evaluating for the same thing and the same process every time. So every candidate gets the same kind of experience. Whereas if you put your interviews out of order, if you have different people asking the same, like different parts of the interview process, you're going to get really varied responses, not because of the candidates, but because your process wasn't solid, if that makes sense. Yeah. Could you take us through, um, I don't know if it makes sense to do it for Spice, but thinking about um, 
something that I'm hearing in conversations with with HR and people ops professionals is, um, you know, the unemployment rate and how important it is to go fast. And something that I struggle with is how do you go fast and do a good job? Yep, hundred percent. Um, so yeah, that is probably a top five anxiety for any recruiter HR person is the fact that our economy is super strong, which side note, it's really great for everybody. Don't get me wrong, but, but certainly makes our jobs at times a little bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and a byproduct of that is yes, when you find a great candidate, you typically want to hire them quickly because they will most likely be off the market or, uh, frankly, they won't wait for you because there's just a lot of, uh, demand, uh, for, for really top candidates. So yeah, a great first thing is what we just said. It's if you have your process solid before you start even like bringing in candidates, you then will be able to move them quickly through that process. You won't be trying to scramble to, you know, figure out what is the next interview or, you know, or try to get everyone on the same page because you've already gotten them all on the same page before you even opened the roles. That's one um, suggestion. The other suggestion um, is there's nothing wrong with moving fast, but as an HR professional or a recruiter, to some extent, it's occasionally your job to ask the team, are we moving quickly for the right reasons? Um, and the reason I do that is uh, typically there's an anxiety about filling a role because recruiting takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always a fear that maybe that next great candidate won't come. So we should move on the candidate we have now. Um, and that is definitely a piece that should, be, should always be considered, but there should always be a counterbalance of, are we being too scared of the market? Are we being too scared of this candidate and overlooking things? And again, that goes back to if you have a really clear understanding about what success would look like in the role, so that scorecard, it really helps you ask the questions of, are we being truly honest with ourselves as a company about this hire, if, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. So what do you like um, for a process? And is it does it depend on the situation and the company, or is there if we use our seven person startup that is just starting to hire outside of their personal network, how should they run it? Sure. Uh, subjective for every company. I'll suggest how I've done it mostly. Um, but I'm not saying this is the only way or the, even the best way. I think every company should sort of determine this on their own. Um, you know, you put the job description out there that's out there. You should have already had your kickoff meeting with your interview team, gotten them all aligned around what does success look like? What are we evaluating for? There'll typically be a phone screen. I like phone screens. I think it just helps 30 minutes, get a gauge. Typically for those, I only evaluate on like base requirements. Like, okay, you know, we said you needed to have five years of experience doing X, Y, and Z. Do you actually have that? Phone screens are very hard to do cultural screenings. Side note, I don't like the term culture fit, and I'll talk about why in a second. Um, okay. But it's hard to get a gauge for the individual. So I just focus entirely on like skills. Do you have the experience? Then typically there's a first stage in person. That first stage in person, I like to keep shorter, an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours at most, um, partially because I don't want to overwhelm the candidate. And I think it's easier for the candidate to get two hours or an hour and a half off their current job. And I don't want to ask them to give up a whole afternoon. Um, and in that round, uh, it depends on how you want to decide. Do you want to evaluate for skills or do you want to evaluate for this culture fit? And I'm going to talk about culture fit in a second. Then typically, um, in some processes, we do have a candidate exercise. That's like a take home. If we do that, we do offer to pay any work we ask people to do outside at home. We do offer to we do pay because I don't believe in asking people to do free work. 
Not every role does a candidate exercise. If there's not a strong portfolio or um, yeah, really want to understand intentionally why you're asking someone to do work. And then typically there's a final round. And the final round tends to be a bit longer. Evaluate for all the remaining things maybe you haven't evaluated for. Um, Typically, we like to have some type of uh, more casual lunch um, with the larger, um, not too many people. We try to limit that to six or seven. Um, But to both see the candidate and let the candidate see us, both in this interview seriousness, but also in a more like casual, laid back environment. Um, I will comment on, I kept saying culture fit. Culture fit is going out of vogue right now in HR because it can sort of mean hiring people who are just like you. And as we discussed earlier, hiring people just like you does not make for a good product typically. Um, The new term that a lot of HR professionals like to use is values fit. So if you do have company values or you have a sense of like, what are the things that make this team, you know, effective, then you evaluate for that rather than this nebulous idea of do they fit with us. Again, the idea of the soup, you know, how does, how do you define the soup? Whereas if you have core values, a value does this person feel like they could live our values. Um, and that's actually a process I'm working on right now at Spice is we have our values, but how do you evaluate them for an inter- in, in an interview? So that's been an interesting project right now. I really like that shift away from culture fit to values fit. That makes really good sense to me. It's like culture. Yeah. Depending on who you're talking to, I don't want to hire our next four people to be 36 year old white dudes. You know, it's like, it's just not going to, it's just not right. So um, flip side, I'll give you an example. One of our values at spice is uh, grow with humility. And to some extent, I think a lot of people could approach that from a lot of different backgrounds in a really meaningful way. It would help us make sure we're hiring people who can still fit with us, but it's not precluding people just based on the idea of like, do we, do I vibe with them? Cause we tend to just vibe with people like us. It's a natural human trait. Sure. So how do you, if we can get like one level of detail, more granular, mm-hmm. maybe specific questions or maybe like approach on how you evaluate somebody for values fit. Um, I guess at whatever state you said, it typically doesn't happen on the phone screen, but as you get to the in-person stuff, What are you listening for? What are you paying attention to? Yeah, it's a great question. So what I just did here at Spice was I actually invited the entire company. About half came. It was great. We took two hours on a, I think it was a Thursday afternoon. There were snacks. That's how I get people to come to things. There were snacks. Um, lots of lots of 90s snacks. There were some good gushers. Um, they do still sell gushers. I was shocked to find wow. that out. Um, I know. I feel like it's probably cancerous. But anyway, um, so and we actually I broke everyone. So we have five company values. I, I broke everyone into five teams and I asked them, hey, how would you want to find out would each would, would a candidate live this value? And so like the value grow with humility, um, that team came up with some really great questions. Some of them were more direct. It was like, hey, tell us about a time you failed. What did you do in response to that? Um, and then some of them were a little bit more nebulous. Like, do they use the we versus I? Granted, the we versus I is a little bit dangerous because there's some gender components in there. Women tend to say we more. Men tend to say I. That doesn't mean that men aren't humble. It's just a way that we're taught. But again, you know, trying to think of four or five different ways we can evaluate holistically and not just double down on, oh, they said I, we're not going to hire them. You know, they said I, but they also had a really great response to the time they failed and came back. Like that would be, you know, 
Um, and so, yeah, it was a collaborative process with the team. And I thought it was really important that the team kind of came up with these questions um, because honestly, they're the ones who helped us create these values. It's their team. It's their company. I want to hear from them. Um, and as a side note, you know, a couple of them actually do get evaluated through a candid exercise. So they're not all just questions based. Some of them are um, uh, like one of our values is look ahead and it's a focus on sustainability. And so if we give the candidate a candid exercise, we sort of look for, you know, do they account for sustainability in what they're building? Um, if it makes sense for the exercise. So things like that. Got it. Um, what do you think are things that people that are new to hiring, like what do they get wrong or what types of things should they try to avoid? Uh, great question. Um, so first and foremost, it's this, we, we sort of touched on it. It's this natural human ability to like people who are like us. And that's not, again, anyone being nefarious. It's just a tendency. Um, I'll give you a great example. I was a former swimmer, swam all throughout college. I love swimming. I talk about it a lot. Um, I have been in interviews where it has somehow come up that the person I'm talking to is a former swimmer. And we'll talk about it because it makes me excited. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if I didn't have a firm sense of what I was evaluating that person on for the job. If I didn't have that candid scorecard we talked about earlier, I might just leave that interview being like, wow, they seemed really cool. Let's hire them. And, and the fact that they were a previous swimmer might indicate they'd be good at the job, but probably actually doesn't indicate that they would be good for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's the one is the likability or the thing that we tend to just generally like people like us. It's two, it's not knowing firmly what you're evaluating for. So it's not having some type of scorecard or at least listed metrics of what does success look like in the role. Because if you don't have that, you're going to default to likability or, wow, they sounded like they really were really successful at their last company. But previous success does not always equate future success if the job's really different. So you just need to be very clear about what you're looking for in terms of skill, experience. Um, and then a third one is just being really nervous about the whole process. Um, getting a higher wrong is difficult. I will say it. It does result in typically the new hire struggling, the manager struggling, the company struggling. And so reactively, a lot of companies, I think, get very nervous about hiring. Um, and I'm t- I agree. I also do not love making a bad hire. But I also think it's more important to uh, take a chance on a good hire than to always hire um, the safe way, if that makes sense, which kind of goes back to don't always hire from your network or don't always hire the person who's just like you or perfectly fits into the role the way you've kind of envisioned it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It sounds like um, a lot of the mistakes can be avoided with a lot of that pre-work like that interview prep, how you broke my sections into two, where it was like, it's really like the pre-interview work of setting the foundation of knowing what you intend to do before you actually start. That feels like a big opportunity to avoid challenge. hundred percent. And it helps you avoid getting halfway in and being like, I feel very, if, 
anyone ever feels very stuck on a candidate, they're like, I don't know why I can't make this decision. It is probably because you don't clearly understand the role, not the candidate. Um, and that's always a good indicator. I frequently talk to friends who are like, I have a couple great candidates. I just can't decide. And I'm like, well, I think it's probably because you're not actually sure what success looks like in the role, not actually about the candidates themselves. One, um, so we've got 10 minutes. And awesome. I figure... We should talk more about gushers. <laughs> yeah, Dunkaroos and fruit roll-ups. <laughs> the, um, something that I'm really curious about is what books or resources or like how do you learn to do all this stuff? I know you went to grad school and that covers a lot, but like there's got to be some some street smarts and some scar tissue of doing the job that's really valuable. So like where do you go to learn some of this stuff? Yes. Uh, so, um, first and foremost, I think this, I shouldn't, this applies to every role. Please don't let me sound like HR people are special, but I think in particular for HR, for people and culture or people ops or whatever the heck we're calling it now, um, there needs to be a natural curiosity, especially a natural curiosity around people. Um, I do occasionally meet people in HR who genuinely don't seem to be interested in people. And I'm always a little surprised by that because at like its the core, H, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, there's the, at, at its core, HR, human resources is truly being interested in people or understanding how people work in an organization. So that's always a little bit. So naturally there should be some level of just curiosity there. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, there's a couple different ways you could approach it. Um, if you're just kind of in like the open stages of like, huh, maybe I find this work interesting. I want to dip my toe in. Um, I'm a big fan of just talking with people who currently do the work and asking them what their day-to-day -day is like. Um, because whenever you're career exploring or just wanting to learn more about a particular, particular field, hey, ask somebody in that field what their day-to-day -day looks like. And it's a great way to learn, huh, yeah, that day sounds really fun. Or actually, that day sounds terrible. I, I never want to do that. Um, uh, it's funny. My A good example of this is my partner is actually a scientist. Um, and I, I look at his calendar sometimes. You know, He spends most of his day in a lab. He looks at my calendar. I spend 80% of my day in meetings and he's like, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And I honestly couldn't be in a lab all day. So, you know, important to understand the day-to-day -day of the work. In terms of deeper than that, there's sort of two ways to approach making a career out of this. It's either most likely getting a job at a company where you're working under somebody who's already doing this type of work and learning from them. So it could be an HR generalist or associate role um, under an HR director or, you know, big multinational companies, you know, 20,000, 100,000 person companies have, you know, hundred have HR teams that have hundreds of people on them. Um, and joining those are a great way to get exposure to a broad range of um, different areas. The other way that you could do, which is the one that I took, which is more formal education, doesn't have to be necessarily graduate school. It could be there are certificate programs. Um, there is SHRM, which is the Society of Human Resource uh, Professionals. They run a certification program that you have to actually study for and take a test to pass. That's a great way to learn it. Um, HR is probably half a little bit of like gut learning how to deal with people coaching and half sort of like really core knowledge around how to build salary bandings or the employment law in your particular state. So, so half it's this more nefarious, uh, not nefarious, nebulous people and half it's sort of core knowledge that you can get in a book or just through experience. If that makes sense. Yeah. Is there, um, 
like if somebody is new to this field specifically in Boston, mm-hmm. like how would you advise them to like get connected to people like yourself and other folks that are doing the job? Definitely. So um, there's a couple groups in uh, the Boston area. SHRM, which I mentioned earlier, is a national organization. They do have a Boston area chapter. HR Disrupt puts on um, workshops every few months here in Boston. They're also national, but they have a Boston chapter. Um, But hey, a big one is LinkedIn. Um, I am a huge evangelist for LinkedIn. I swear they don't pay me. I feel like they should though. Um, did they have like a like a sponsored? No, they probably don't. Um, they're, they're probably too big now. We can look um, into it. So I will tell you, um, reaching out to people on LinkedIn can feel very scary and very uncomfortable. But if you're reaching out to somebody to ask them to tell you about their career versus ask them for a job, those are two very different asks. Typically, if you're asking somebody for a job, they probably can't help you because they don't have a job to magically give you. I work in HR. I actually do create jobs. I frequently cannot just give jobs to people. Um, and I'm probably the best suited person to do so. But if someone can wants to just talk to me about what I do, I can definitely do that for them. And that makes me feel good. Also, if someone's asking me to talk about what I do, they're kind of validating the thing that I deeply hope is true, which is that I'm cool. We all want to believe we're cool. <laughs> um, and if people tell us, I want to hear about your life, that just makes us feel really good. So reaching out on LinkedIn to tell somebody, hey, I think what you do is really cool. Can I talk to you about it? They're most likely going to say yes, because you've just made their day, if not their week or even year. Yeah, definitely. Um, is there anything I wanted to save a few minutes in case there was a direction that you wanted to take that I didn't hit in the past 50 minutes or so? Sure. Honestly, I feel like we've covered so much. Can I actually turn it back to you, Tom, and ask... Any, any, what questions do you have on anything that I've just talked about? <laughs> yeah, the, the interviewing thing to me is, um, is really interesting because I worked at a uh, small family construction business for the past five years and I did some, so I supported the founders on interviewing and hiring and it just like some of the stuff you were saying about the right way to do it. I was in my head like, shit, I missed that. And and I will, so I grew up, my, my parents actually own a small business. It's it's about, you know, 15 people. Um, and this in particular is, can be really hard for small businesses that don't hire very often. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think they can benefit the most from this. Um, I feel like, yeah, there's so much resources out there for larger companies, but it's really small businesses back to the very first start of our conversation. It's why I love working in this space and really helping companies kind of get it right as early as possible. Do you want to give us um, a minute or two on Spice and what you guys are working on? Yes. So hopefully most of your listeners are in Boston. If you're not in Boston, come to Boston. Uh, We are a Boston-based food startup, um, which uh, is founded by four MIT graduates. Um, We have one location in Downtown Crossing, and we're opening our second in Harvard Square, which is in Cambridge for those non-Boston listeners. Um, And what we really want to be known for is fantastic flavors with a global influence And this interesting component of a lot of our cooking is done through automation. Um, So you might know a lot about automation. You might hear about how, let's be honest, robots are are out there um, doing jobs. We have a really cool model where we have people in the restaurant. They're engaging with our customers. Um, I deeply am always inspired by our team on the ground. 
And then we have this automation component that is mostly doing the work of cooking, cleaning itself, um, that allows our employees to be out kind of talking with you, ta- educating our consumer. Um, and yeah, I always think everyone should go try a spice bowl because I think they're pretty delicious. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Um, we're almost right up against an hour. So I just wanted to take a second to say thanks. I really enjoyed that. I feel like we just scratched the surface on a lot of this stuff we got we kind of raced around and hit a bunch of stuff, but not much depth. So there's a chance I may come back to you in three weeks and say, Hey, something you said to me was really interesting or somebody reached out about this. Could we, you know, do another half hour on just that? So happily. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Lydia. That was so fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.